The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Deal with it now before it's too late. He pleads with people to listen and respond. Well, that topic, this talking about judgment and people being cast into prison and and condemned, that topic generates in some listeners this recall of a story that maybe they want Jesus' opinion on, but it seems like they kind of think is an example of what he's talking about, and they kind of bring it up as, as maybe like we're on the same page. Yeah, we agree with you. What about these guys, these Galilean people? We'll read the story here in a moment. And Jesus' response to what they bring up stops the the crowd, confronts the crowd, calls them to respond in a similar way he's been calling them before. So there's, there's, there's hard there. And like last week, let me point out again, the hard is coming right off the lips of Jesus. It is a confrontation of the world from Jesus. Listen to it and hear it. And then, as we'll see, there also is something sweet in it if we keep listening. Because he's going to turn and talk not just about the heart, but he's going to turn and also talk about the character of God who stands over us. And in that, there is a sweet hope. The good God ultimately calls us to himself, not just with some sort of a stern, some sort of a a whip, get in line, but he actually woos us to himself by laying in front of us the marvelous sweetness of his character, who he is. So we've got to hear both of this this morning, so keep listening all the way through. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. This is chapter 13 from the Gospel of Luke, verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to make two observations and one from each paragraph. Beginning in verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Luke 13. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first one. Without repentance, all alike will perish under God's judgment. 
without repentance, all alike will perish under God's judgment. Verse 1 says that at that very time, in other words, right when Jesus was just telling that, that parable, he finishes off the discussion of him being the one who brings fire and tells the parable about being thrown in jail. Right then at that time, they bring up this situation with these Galileans that Pilate, the local ruler, had, says, mingled their blood with the sacrifices, a way of expressing that he killed them while they were at worship, offering up sacrifices to God. So somehow those two events happened about the same time. They were in the process of worshiping, maybe going to the temple, coming from it, and Pilate killed them. We don't know anything else about this event other than what's written right there, but we do know, we can tell from this story about how they viewed it. You can tell from how Jesus responds. The crowd's thinking that this says something about how extremely sinful these particular Galileans were, to be killed while worshiping. Well, Jesus asks them rhetorically in verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Obviously, the answer is yes. It's exactly what we're thinking. They were killed while worshiping. That must mean that God was particularly displeased with them. They're thinking, maybe like we might think if we saw, and I'm going to throw out a couple of examples here. I am not trying to mention or make you think about any particular people. I'm not trying to call into judgment any particular people, but these sorts of things have happened. Maybe you recall a story some time back about some people in a, in a, bap, a baptismal pool in the middle of church, tragically electrocuted. Something fell into the water. If you saw that happen like 800 people did, some might think, whoa, that's the unique judgment of God. I'm not questioning them, at, not, not at all. But if you saw it happen, you might think. Or maybe to pull in what Jesus mentions down below, the story of the tower falling, something that, that looks like an act of God, kind of like such a coincidental, wrong place, wrong time. I knew of a guy, I knew of a, not a guy, I knew of a car driving 45 miles an hour down a road and a big tall tree from a church property fell onto the road right as the car was passing and killed the man in the car. Only car on the road, only tree that fell. What must that person have done to have been gotten by God like that? What must those people have done to have deserved that? They must, man, those must have been the kind of people that Jesus is talking about that have an accusation against them that are going to get thrown in prison. Those are the bad people. Again, I'm not saying that about these people. But that kind of thing occurs to us sometimes. In a non-Christian context, maybe we hear about Muslims being trampled to death as they're circling the Kaaba in Mecca, and we kind of think, there, God got them. We kind of sometimes think like that. We human beings are accustomed to looking at circumstances in life, particularly uniquely, oddly bad circumstances, and thinking that God must somehow be in that reaching out and, and judging them. Or sometimes the reverse, as is also going on in this passage. In the absence of uniquely bad, uniquely negative, uniquely terrible situations, think, well, I must be doing okay then, I must be fine, because life's going fine. God did that to them, but not to me, because I must be okay. 
That's what they're thinking. Those are the bad people. We must be the good people. And Jesus' response is quite different. He responds in a way that shocks them. Do you think that this happening to them indicates that they were worse sinners? No. Or, to pick up the story from below, that these people the tower fell on were worse offenders, literally worse debtors, owed a greater debt. You can hear the echo of the previous passage, the debtor's jail. Nope. No different. You're just like them. They're just like you. Equally sinful, equally in debt. All alike will perish. All will perish under God's judgment. All the same. Everybody there is clear, and we must be clear also, that the context here is one of eternal judgment, not just physical death. Perishing is what they're discussing. Another way of putting that might be being destroyed, not just dying. All alike, he says to this crowd of thousands, you and you and you and you all will perish. Those who die by an unusual act of God, those who die in in seemingly religious context, and those who die happy in bed at age 90. All alike will perish. This could not be any more serious. And of course, as we think about this, maybe as it kind of hits you, it is not hard to understand why the crowds are turning away from Jesus. This is Jesus telling the world it's going to hell. To be very clear about that. This is Jesus telling, think where, he's, where he is. He's in Israel speaking to a largely Israelite crowd that thinks it is the people of God, and he's telling them all alike are going to perish under the judgment of this God who you think favors you. No wonder they don't like him. This is a perishing that is beyond physical death, but that which all of our physical deaths are pointing to, alerting us that there is an end. There is a judge at a judgment, and it is coming, and it cannot be stopped. It cannot be avoided. All that we can do is deal with it now before it's too late. At that judgment, what comes from this righteous and just judge is a fair and honest, clear and open, and perfectly informed evaluation of every single person. And what comes, the verdict that arises then is that all have turned away. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So he doesn't judge and evaluate people based on, on you did this or that wrong. Or, all have turned away from him. All have separated themselves and thought, this is the way that God calls me. This is the one that I am called to trust. This is the one that I am supposed to obey and with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength love. And I do not and did not. 
that will be clearly seen and evaluated, and all will perish. That is truly awful, and it is sorrowful beyond comprehension. And we have to sit there with that and realize that is in, I mean, you can look at it, it's right there in the speech, in the red letters off Jesus' lips. It is appointed for people to die once and then face judgment. But, thank God, and literally, thank God, there is, of course, something I've skipped, right? If you're reading this, you're, you're following along and you're thinking, maybe you're thinking, I do not think I like that. Uh, I'm, in some way, I'm sensing condemnation there that is not, first of all, it certainly isn't comfortable, and it's, it's half offensive, frankly, and maybe a bit frightening. I don't think I like that, and you're, you're feeling like this, but then you're also saying, but I, uh, hold on, you skipped something. I did. You're right. We all, you might be thinking, me included, I will perish unless. The word unless is in there. Yeah, absolutely. Reach into your Bible, grab a hold of that word unless, grip it tightly and say, thank God for this word unless because there is there's an alternative provided by God here to all of us alike. All will perish, all alike will perish, unless, he says, unless you repent. What's repentance? In simplest terms, the word just means to undergo a turn or a change of mind. So you, if you think repentance, think of it like this. Think of you have one perspective, one thought, one affection, one direction, and then you turn, you repent, you change to the other. And as such, the word's not actually a spiritual word. It's, it's not purely and only a, a religious word. It goes in all kinds of contexts. But in this context, in the, in the context of the Bible, what does the Bible mean when it calls us to repent? What did John the Baptist mean when he preached about repentance? What does Jesus mean here when he says, unless you repent, you'll perish? What does he mean? Well, unless you repent, you, you undergo a change in your perspectives about who God is and who you are and how those two relate. Put it another way. Unless you undergo and, and turn, undergo a change in where your allegiance lies, what your heart holds to. See, repentance is an internal thing first. Where your affections are, are oriented, 
what you find reasonable and appropriate and what you, what you follow after and what you obey and what you hold to, what you love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love yourself or do you turn and do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And in particular, what do you trust to make you right before God? Do you trust in your own abilities and in your own goodness, your own obedience, or do you turn and trust in his goodness, in his obedience, Jesus's that is? Two ways. And unless you repent and turn from self to him, from allegiance to self to allegiance to him, from trust in yourself and your own righteousness to trust in his cross, his payment for your sin. Unless you repent, you cannot be saved, but will instead perish. And that is in the heart. That is within us first. Of course, it does come out on the outside. We live out of our hearts. It comes out in our behaviors. And if it is genuine, there will be a change in life. There will be and must be a change in life. But it is not just talking about a change in life. It's first about the heart. Who has our allegiance? And in whom do we trust? May God open your eyes to see that all human ways and all human efforts and all human goodness in the end is just futile, empty, frustrating, and leads to perishing. May you open your eyes to see this. Do you see this? And do you see, may God open your eyes to see this, that he alone is good and he alone is wise and right. That he alone can save you. That he alone can actually provide life to you. The life that you're chasing and, and were made for and, and sense inside a longing for. He alone has it in his hand. He alone can give it to you because it is found in relationship with him alone. You open your eyes to see this and then as you see it, it will seem right and good and reasonable to you to turn to take this life that you have been pursuing, to take the life of self and lay it in front of him, to lay all of it on the table in front of him, and instead take up his cross and follow him and find what he promises life. To turn to him and to repent is the only way to avoid perishing. Jesus himself is extremely clear about that. Unless we repent, we will all perish. He does not favor a certain gender or a certain race, a certain age, all alike of all ages. Everyone faces this decision. Repent or the judgment comes and you perish. So Jesus speaking to the crowds certainly reckoning that many will hear this and turn away, nevertheless holds out to them, this is the reality that the world faces. And it sits in front of each of us today. 
and calls us then to repent. So repent and turn to Christ and be saved today while it is still called today. In other words, while there's still a chance. No one's promised tomorrow. Do it today. And the second observation then explains why there is a today. In other words, why there is this moment when you're sitting there or you're listening to this and you're hearing this message, why you got to this day, why there is a today. Here it is, second observation. Because God is mercifully patient, we have the chance today to repent. Because God is mercifully patient, we have the chance today to repent. The first paragraph is is so clear and firm. If that's all that we had, it would perhaps hit us like, like kind of a stiff, cold wind. Clear, but not very warm. Not, not very warm. In fact, it chills a little bit. And if that's all we had, it, it might just kind of shut down because there is, it might cause it to kind of shut down because there is in some way, though I have tried not to, not to embellish it, there is something that is inherently confrontational about that. Where someone says to us, one way or the other, there is no third. You don't get, you don't get to make a third. It's one way or the other. There's not much warmth in that. There's kind of cold logic and, and a, a, a confrontational attitude. But if we keep reading... We keep thinking about this. There actually is something warm here that is expressed subtly. Jesus knows he's talking to a crowd that at its root does not like him. But he wants, so he's telling them the truth, but he wants to also express to, to the world, and Christian, this will, this will speak to us too. There is something warm here when we see the character of God pulled into the story. So he tells this parable, verse 6, about a vineyard with the owner who plants a fig tree in this vineyard and gave it plenty of time, three seasons. But the fig tree never produced figs, and now why do you want a fruit tree? You want a fruit tree because you want fruit. So seeing that there wasn't any, after waiting for plenty of time, the landowner decided to pull the plug And he tells the man who works there to cut it down. After all, it's just using up the nutrients in the soil and it's robbing that, it's negatively affecting all the rest of the the plants there. So get rid of it, cut it down, which that would then, of course, be and throw it into the fire. This is a clear allusion to judgment, a, a clear allusion to the perishing that he was just talking about. But, verse 8, the worker persuades him to wait one more season, promising to try a few more things, see if that'll help. But this won't go on forever, he says. If there is no fruit, then, okay, then you can cut it down. So this tree's future includes either producing fruit or perishing. So there's a clear fork in the road there, no third option for this tree. 
but why is it not cut down today? Why one more year? Because in his own freedom, get that, in his own freedom, the owner decides to be patient. That's the only reason. There is no necessary waiting period. There's no obligation here. The fruitless tree stands right there. The axe lies right there. The command is already formed and expressed. Cut it down. Why should it waste the nutrients? Get rid of it. The axe is laid there at the root, as John the Baptist said, ready to be swung, and then it isn't. Instead, the axe is laid aside, and what is put at the roots is nourishment. I'm going to dig up the roots and aerate them, and I'm going to put manure on there to, to provide nutrients. I'm, I'm going to massage the situation. I'm going to try to work on it, says the, says the employee there. Where the blows should have fallen, I'm going to apply blessing. Jesus tells this parable to, to make clear why he uses the future tense up in verses 3 and 5 and not the past or the present. Will perish is totally different than have perished or are perishing. He's talking about something that's going to be tomorrow, down the road, future, when by all rights it should have already happened. He's speaking in the previous parable up at the end of 12 about settle it before you get there. He's, he's got all this future orientation about what is coming but isn't yet. There is a today in which there is still a chance, and that is because God is mercifully patient. He is just. Indeed, there is, there is clear talk from Jesus about perishing. There is clear talk about judgment and a judge. He is just and righteous. He is angered at sin, but he is also merciful and patient and slow to anger and not remotely eager that any should perish. He is, he is not looking forward to the day. Knows it must be because he is just, but in fact is pleading, while it's today, would you please repent? And let me apply blessing there to encourage you, to with kindness draw you on towards repentance. This is the character of God. He is mercifully patient. He is not patient grudgingly. That's not the point of this parable. You might read this parable and think that somebody, the... the worker here kind of like talks God into it. He doesn't really want to be merciful. But okay, he gets kind of arm twisted into it. That's not, no, 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 that's not what Jesus tells the parable. This is not like some person persuading God or even Jesus, God the Son, persuading God. The people are the, are the trees. And Jesus, God the Son, shares the single unified will of God God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all on one page. They are not divided against one another, kind of arguing out their position. He's not telling us to show us what reluctant patient looks like, patience looks like or, or like a just patience, like he has to wait. He's trying to show us what merciful patience looks like. Patience that shouldn't be, but is anyway. 
He's trying to clarify for us three seasons, no fruit. That should be enough, right? But I'll give it another one anyway because I am merciful in my patience. His patience is astounding and full and strong. It is a patience that is is strong. It is poised because there is a cost to be borne with patience like this. This is the God who made everything. Made it from nothing. And patiently bears with this creation, these creatures in open rebellion against him. And he bears that and bears that and bears that. Can you imagine the, the let's say, the, the heart pain of a parent who knows his or her kids hate him and are plotting to overthrow him and even kill him? How that must hurt a parent. How that must shame a parent as the next door neighbors see the children disrespect the parents. And the parent bears with it anyway. There's a cost born there in the waiting, in the patience. There's a cost born there then in the face of such insult to, to return to it, not justice, but mercy, not not vengeance, but, but grace to pour on where there should be blows to pour on blessing. He is scorned and ignored, mocked by the spiritual forces that see the world that God made in open rebellion and running on. And he stands there and he takes it and he takes it and he takes it and he takes it. And pleads with those who are in rebellion, turn and live. Turn and live. He is sorely provoked. And he is strong under it. And gracious to meet us with today more blessing, rain and sunshine and relationships and bodies that work and little delights and, and great joys, most of which we, we never trace back to the hand of God, but all of which comes from him. This is the God who draws us with kindness, who woos us, who wants to make clear to us this day, today, is available to you to turn to me and repent because I am merciful and patient and waiting. Do you see him like that? How can he be like that? The only reason, the only way that he can be like that, the only way that anybody can be like that is that they look ahead to some point when it's all made right. To some point when, when the cost borne, the, the burden carried is ratified or justified, or made right, fixed in some way. And God, the mercifully patient judge, 
knows, he looks ahead, he realizes, as the parable also makes clear, my merciful patience at some point will bring us all to a place where it's all sorted out and made right. In other words, he's not mercifully patient forever. Justice is enacted on us or on the Son. One of two places. Incidentally, this is, this is the, the ground for how we can be mercifully patient with people who offend us, is that we also look ahead and say, it's all sorted out one, one day, either on this offender or on the Son. That's how God the Father thinks. That's what empowers God the Father to be mercifully patient with us today, that he looks ahead and says, there is a time when the burden is borne finally by either Christ or by this offender. And justice is answered. But today, because of his mercy, because of his patience, there is opportunity for you to hear and repent. Do so and live. Do you see that this, this is the God? Sure, there is, there is the cold wind of perish, but there is also the, the warm breeze that comes behind it that says, the one who's speaking is, is himself so merciful and so patient with you. He's, he's inviting you with his goodness. See that and come to him. Obviously here, throughout much of this, Jesus' direct audience is, is a non-believing world that's, that's kind of set against him a little bit. And so much of what we've been thinking about this morning has its first and direct application to us who have not yet believed. But I know most here, you have already repented. What, what of this for you then? What of this for you? Well, think. What difference does it make to you that God is mercifully patient Speaking now directly to those who already have repented, you're already a Christian, what difference does it make to you that God is mercifully patient? Well, who here is perfectly full of fruit? That's the goal that he's after. He's not just after repentance kind of as an abstract concept. I want you to turn but what the turning does is the turning changes us, and what comes of that is this fruitful fig tree that he's looking for. He's after fruit. That's why he planted the tree. He's after, to, to leave the analogy, God is after people who will fill up a kingdom that is about his praise. A kingdom that magnifies his glory throughout all of the earth like the water covers the sea. He's after a fruitful people. It's the fruit that comes from repentance, from turning to God, because it is actually, truly a product of God in us. All fruitfulness in us is not created by us. It is actually created by God in us. In us, as we turn to him, and Christian, you know this, as you turn to him, what happens? The Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you and begins a home renovation project, and you change. 
And on the, the branches of your life, what is grown is the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. You become increasingly like Jesus. You become increasingly mirrors that reflect the glory of God as you walk around and live in this world. We are new creations. We are being made new. That's the fruit that he's after in us. It's what Christ produces in us. And I'm a failure at that. So are you. To different degrees, sure, of course. But if, if the vine dresser were to walk through the vineyard and, and check out the branches of any particular one of us, he would find marred fruit and missing fruit, wouldn't he? Fruit, yes, but marred fruit and some missing fruit. So what difference does it make to you that God is mercifully patient? Well, if you look at yourself and you see how fruitless some of my days and some of my weeks are, how unfruitful I can be and sometimes am. If you look at yourself like that and see in it, even as a true child of God, see in it a host of, of failure in it and a bunch of sin. What is common for us, how we commonly walk, is either to ignore that or to beat ourselves with it. Either to say, doesn't matter, I'm a Christian, I'm good, and, and ignore fruitlessness in my life, ignore sin in my life, or to live as a Christian who is constantly self-condemned Fruit matters. He's after fruit in us. And remarkably, how he draws out fruit from us is not how we think it should work. It's not by whip, not by, by condemnation. He draws out the fruit that comes from faith, the fruit that comes from repentance. He draws that out from us, Christian, also by kindness. It's the same thing. He draws us to repent in the first place and draws us to repent today and tomorrow and the next day. He draws us into a life of repentance by showing us the showering of His grace on us. How good is your God? How gracious is your God? How remarkably, mercifully patient is your God with you? Though you are not what you should be. Don't ignore that. Look at that and embrace it because ironically, as you look at and embrace, I am not what I should be. How remarkably patient he is with me. It is that kindness right there that will draw you onto repentance and will grow fruit in you and will change to be more what you should be. It is an ironic loop, but it is how God works with us and it is sweet. Who likes to be beaten? I'd rather be blessed. And this is the God who is remarkably mercifully patient with you, Christian, in the midst of your failures, showing that to you because it must be seen by you. He is patient with you, but you have to see that. Do you see it, Christian? Do you see that this is what God is with you? He's a God who does not lower the bar, but de demands fruit and then graciously works with you and in you and on you by kindness to 
produce in you that fruit. This is a God not to be resisted, but to be surrendered to and trusted. And what you will find there when you lay all of your life on the table is you'll find life there. What a ridiculously crazy good thing that is. He is a God. He is a God who is pure and right and merciful and gracious. He is a God who is absolute and who is forgiving. And if you're in Christ, he's your God. And that's the best news that you can ever imagine. So trust him and embrace him and walk with him. Yield to him. Do not resist him. Yield to him. Take the promises of God, all of his goodness to you, all of your security in him, the surety that he will be with you tomorrow. Take that, believe it, and walk with him. And what will grow in your life is fruit. Love of others, love of him, because he first loved you. Patience with others, because he's patient with you. Kindness to others as you reflect on his kindness to you. Your life is secure in his hands. You can give it away to other people. Fruit will be born in you as you realize the good, patient, merciful God who sits over you and holds you in his hands. Trust him. Walk with him and bear fruit in his name. Let me pray. God, will you help us? Some here, perhaps some who hear this, some, Lord, don't know you and stand at a crossroads today of perishing or repenting, would you call them to repentance and turn them towards you, cause them to see you as the, as the good God who is their only hope and to trust your cross? Lord, for us here who know you, and as we look at our lives, recognize the fruitlessness in this place and in that, the struggles that we face, the failures that are common to us, we see all that. Would you draw near and help us and show us your kindness, your patient mercy. Show that to your people. Give them a strong assurance this is who you are for us. And with that, draw us onto repentance and increasing fruitfulness to your glory and our great good. Please do this, Father, by your Spirit, that the Son may be honored in his church. Thank you. Amen. Our hearts ran wild, our tongues could
see that while you only have a single hope, it's a great hope. He's the hope that we need, and we have him. So go resting in him, go trusting him, go confident in him, go in peace with him. Go in peace. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.